We are going through the Old Testament book of Judges, and we have two weeks left in Judges. And I've said through this whole few months that probably many of us, most of us, even if we've been in church our whole lives, have hardly heard any sermons on, from the book of Judges. If we had heard any sermons, they would likely be about Samson or Gideon. There might be a few judges that you pick out where they tell some of those stories. But this week and next week, I'm pretty sure almost no one has heard a sermon on this part of Judges. In fact, the first few times I can remember in college reading through uh, this part of Judges and these last chapters of Judges and just thinking like, why is this in the Bible? This, this doesn't make any sense why this is even in the Bible, particularly the last three chapters, what we talk about next week. But we're going we're gonna to go for it. We, it's, it is in the Bible. So we need to find, like, okay, what is God saying to us through this? Now, here's something about Judges that has become clearer to me in these last months as I've gotten ready and then done this, this series, and that is that a lot of the Bible, you can take a few verses, especially in the New Testament. You can just take a few verses and read them, and you can think, I can, I can get some meaning out of this. I can see what God might be saying to me out of this. In Judges, it's not like that. You just pick five, six random verses, 10, 12 random verses, and it just might be like, huh? But if you know the whole story, and if you watch the themes of the story, then there can be more meaning that can be drawn from Judges. So briefly, let me review what we've talked about. Judges has two introductions. It starts out and it gives an introduction on here is kind of the setting that Judges begins. And really the first introduction is like, here's the trajectory of Judges. It starts good. They're supposed to go into the land. The people of God are supposed to go into the land, the Israelites, and establish themselves in the land and live according to God's ways and show the rest of the world what God's like so they can become like that. And it starts good, but then it says the trajectory is like, oh, but then they kind of, but it doesn't quite, but then, and you get to a point where, why is it not working so well? Well, they have worshipped idols. They've forsaken God. They are following evil, just like the peoples all around them. Instead of them influencing people, the peoples are influencing them. So you get this trajectory, and it's not a good one. That's how it introduces. That's what's going to happen. But it's not like this. It's not like a straight line down. Instead, the second introduction talks about there's a cycle. There's going to be, okay, we're living in, in peace in the land, following God's ways, but then we turn to other gods. We do evil. This is what happens with the Israelites. And then there's judgment that comes. Another group of people come in, take them over. It gets bad. They cry out to the Lord, and after crying out to the Lord, he sends a judge, a hero, a deliverer, and that hero uh, saves them, frees them from those people, and there's peace in the land again, and they follow God. That's the cycle. Now, you put these two things together, the trajectory and the cycle, and what you have is a spiraling. It's like coming back up, but then back down. And so the, then... What we've talked about for many weeks in a row is these judges. We haven't really talked about the ones where there's just like a verse or two about them because there's not much in there, but the major judges we've talked about. And when you start with the major judges, it's good. Othniel is a good judge. He's in a good marriage with someone who also follows God, who's a wise 
wise woman, that there's a way in which they work together with the peoples around them. They bring people together. All of that is good. Ehud, similarly, there's good. Uh, the co-judgeship of Deborah and Barak is good. There's a worshiping of God. There's a following of God. There's a bringing of people together, although not perfectly. But by the end, when we're talking about Gideon, we're talking about a, who starts good, but he ends up fighting against his own own people by the end. He ends up setting up an idol, a worship center for idolatry in his own land at the end of his life. His son ends up murdering, mass murdering all of his brothers so that he can take over. If you get to Jephthah, Jephthah does a lot of things good, but he ends up sacrificing his daughter, does a human sacrifice to God. When you get to Samson, you get the opposite of Othniel's marriage. You get marrying someone who doesn't even follow God. That doesn't work out. He's got a prostitute. Later he has a mistress. You have someone who doesn't bring people together. He's just a solo guy. You have this, it's coming down. And so now we get to the end. And there are two conclusions at the end, just like there's two introductions. They're just stories, but they're conclusions to make a point. So as we talk about today's, we bear in mind that this is cycling down. And this, at the end, is going to summarize where are things at in this time for the people of God. Chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, say this. Now a man named Micah, from the hill country of Ephraim, said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he, he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. Okay, this is a strange story. Son steals 1,100 shekels of silver. That's a lot of money. Just stole a whole bunch of money from his mom. His mom, the money's stolen. She lays a curse on whoever stole it. He knows it's a curse. He, he believes in curses. He doesn't want that curse to rest on him. So he goes back and says, you know what? I'm the one who stole it. Her response is, Oh, well, I bless you. I reverse that curse. And in fact, I'm going to give you the money. I'm going to set, dedicate it to the Lord. And here's how I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord on behalf of you is I'm going to have an idol made for you to use. There's a lot about that that doesn't make sense. There's a lot about that that for people who are supposed to live according to God's ways, they're violating God's ways. Now, the next verse is certainly the key to today story. It's probably, if there is a key verse in the book of Judges as a whole, this is it. Chapter 17, verse 6 says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Literally everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So, here's what, why that, that verse is placed where it is. Because it's just sort of like a little... Aside, You know, it's telling the story, and then it just sticks this verse in right here. It's because what we see with a guy who would steal money from his mom, with a mom who would bless and dedicate something to the Lord but make an idol out of it, that is what's true as a whole in the country in Israel. That's what's true. 
They are, everyone's doing as they see fit. Why do I say this may be a key verse to the whole passage? Well, it's going to keep coming up. So there's two parts to this story today. And in the beginning of the second part, chapter 18, verse 1, it says again, Israel, in those days, Israel had no king. It's referring to this same idea. Everyone did as they saw fit. There's no leader. Everyone's just doing what they think is best. Then next week, when we get to the last conclusion, the first verse of the second conclusion is, in those days, Israel had no king. Again, referring to the same thing. And then the last verse of the entire book of, of Judges is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone just did what was right for them. So the idea is, here's, here's one way of looking at it. Think about this idea. If it is good, if it is good, genuinely a, a good thing, then it's right for me. It's right for me to do it. Compared to, if it's right for me, if it's good for me, then that's how it's good. It's a little confusing, but let me, let me say it using this. God said, here is what is good. I'm going to give you 10 commands. He said this to the people of Israel. I'm going to give you 10 commands. If you follow them, it's going to be good. If you violate them, it's not good. Here are the 10 commands. There's commands like, no other gods. Don't make idols. Honor your father and mother. Do not steal. That is good. A society where stealing just happens all the time won't be a good society. Well, what do we have here? We have Micah who says, you know what, I don't care about honoring my mom. To take money from my parent is like saying, I want my inheritance now and I want you dead. It's very dishonoring, especially back in that culture. So I am going to steal from you because it's good for me that I have this money now. That's good for me. So that's the right thing to do. Compared to, it's bad to steal, it's bad to dishonor your parents, so the right thing to do is not do that. So he does that. What's his mom's response? Or no, then he finds out he's cursed. Well, a curse would be bad for me. I don't want to be cursed, so here's what's good for me. I'm going to bring the money back. Okay, the curse, that's what's good for me now. And the mom, it starts out like I think good. She's blessing, kind of forgiving. But what would be good for her? She doesn't want to lose her son. She wants her son to be, be, so she's going to say, like, I'm going to indulge my son. Instead of saying, like, you're going on a wrong path here, I'm going to indulge him. I know what would really make him happy. I just want him to be happy. All I care about is that my son is happy, so I'm going to make him an idol. Now, I believe in God, so it's going to be on behalf of the Lord that I'm going to make him this idol. But having idols is not good. It's not good for the son. But he needs to be happy. And I'll be happy if he's happy. And he must not like me that he'd steal this money, so I want him to like me again. And that's what would be good for me. What is good for me? Whatever's good for me. Now, that's not at all like the, the place we live right now, where everyone just does what's good for me, where everyone says, all I want is for you to be happy. It's for me to be happy. All that matters is someone is happy. And that's how we decide what's right. Will it make me happy? Not, is it good? Not, does God say it's good? Not, does God say it's right? 
No, it's what makes me happy. What will make you happy? That's the, pe- that's the period of judges. I would say it's pretty clear that's where we live. Now, moving on. Here's what happens next. Um, this, this, they introduce this Levite from Bethlehem and Judah. He's been in Bethlehem of Judah. I should explain quickly Levites. So there are 12 tribes in Israel, and then there's this 13th tribe. The 13th tribe is the Levites. They don't get like a land allotment to them. Levites are supposed to, their inheritance is the Lord. They're the priests. They're the ones who minister. They're the ones that teach. They're the ones that they are supposed to minister on behalf of the Lord and help people connect to God and vice versa. That's their, that's their role. So they live among different groups of people. So one's living in the tribe of Judah. For some reason, he says, I don't want to live in Judah anymore. I'm going to look for a new place to live. And he shows up at Micah's house. And so as they're talking, he tells Micah, I'm looking for a new place to live. Verse 10 says, then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest. And I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and food. So the Levite agreed to live with him. And the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite and the young man because his became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since the Levite has become my priest. Now, again, Micah, he has his son. He has his son. Now, his son probably isn't a Levite. I know he probably got like ordained online, one of those certificates you can get so you can do a wedding or something like that. I mean, he's not legit. So now he's got the chance to have like a Levite priest. So he quickly, you know, forget it. You're not my priest anymore, son, because what's good for me is to have a, a legitimate one. So I'm bringing you in. And he says at the end, this is what's, now the Lord will be good to me. What's motivating him is this is what will make me happy. This is what I want to do. Now we go on to ch- chapter 18. The first 13 verses I'm going to just summarize. And then I'm going to read the next 13 verses. Here's, here's what's going on. It, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And, so it's reminding you, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Now, it talks about the tribe of Dan. In chapter 1 of Judges, it's talking about each of the tribes and how they go get their land and go get their land, but then instead of like driving out the other people, they kind of live among them, some of them. It gets to Dan, and Dan never even gets their land. That's what happens in chapter 1. They never even take their land. They just are kind of there, letting the other people kind of rule over them. So we pick it up here, years later, they're still looking for their land. They send five spies out. The five spies go looking for where should we, where should we go. As they go, they get to Micah's house. They're, they decide they're going to spend the night at Micah's house for a day, and they start talking to the Levite, who they recognize, because they had lived in this area near the Levite. And they say, what are you doing here? He says, well, this guy is giving me money. He's, giving, he's got idol. He's got all of this. And they're like, oh, great. Inquire of God. Will we be successful? in trying to find a spot. And he says, yes, you will. So they go on, they find a, a land that is awesome, that is not well guarded, that people aren't strong. They can take this land. I can't get into the disturbing part of, of them just destroying a bunch of people so that they take the land. But anyway, they do that. They say, oh, this is going to be good. They go back to report to the rest of the tribe and they say, it's good land. We can get it. Let's go get it. And so they take 600 fighting men. As they take 600 fighting men, here's, they, let's see here, verse 13, let's go to verse 14, verse 14. So they, they're, now they're traveling back, and they get to Micah's house again, on their way to go take this land. Then the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, 
Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at at the entrance of the gate. The five men who spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. And the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods. The priest said to them, what are you doing? They answered him, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan in Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol and went along with the people. Putting their little children, their livestock, and the possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you? that you called out your men to fight. He replied, you took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, don't argue with us or some of the men might get angry and attack you and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned around and went back home. Okay, so now all the Danites come. They come with these five men. They're like, this guy's got the deal. By the way, 1,100 shekels is a lot of money back then. A lot of money. So this is a big time idol. This is, he's got a shrine. He's got a place where they can worship. The, the whole area is probably coming to him. Part of the reason that this is good for Micah. But now the Danites come and they say, we can have a priest that's for us. Great. They take all the stuff. And Micah, after they leave, he finds out, they get people together. They're going to go take it. And Micah's like, you, that's my stuff. You can't just take my stuff. And they say, yeah, we can. There's more of us. We're going to take it. Now, the language is the exact same. He took the silver from his mom. He was totally fine when he takes the silver. It's good for him. But now he's infuriated that someone's going to take his stuff, the same silver, actually, of the idol. Take his priest. Everyone is doing what is right, but is growing. So you've got one person who's going to do whatever they want. And that it leads to a family and a whole household and a whole community that's going to do whatever they want. But now you've got an entire tribe, region, they're coming and they're doing whatever they want. Now, one last thing. Verse 31. Oh, verse 30 and 31. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. So there's this Levite. It's always about the Levite, the Levite, the priest. This is the, it's a grandson or great-grandson. Maybe the language is, maybe it's not quite that close, but it is a direct descendant of Moses, the man of God, the man who brought the Ten Commandments. This Levite, this priest that everyone's fighting over is Moses. They got celebrity pastor. That's what they're excited about. They got him. And he's doing idol worship. And everyone thinks it's normal. They can't even see that things have totally went off the rails. That we're no longer even following God, even though they got Moses' grandson himself. Because everyone's just doing what they see fit. 
because they're still using the name of the Lord. They're still calling themselves the people of the Lord, the people of God. But they don't realize how much idolatry is filtered in. And they don't realize now they're living in a place where it's not about what's right. It's not about what's good. It's about whoever's strongest. Whoever's strongest gets their way. Now, is that what Jesus' way is like? Jesus, if that's what Jesus' way was like, when he came, he would not have come as a baby. He would not have allowed himself to get arrested. He would not have allowed himself to be, to be killed. He was trying to show goodness. How are we good? How is, if he wanted to come and show that the strongest is who wins, then he would have brought an angel army host with him to show that he's the strongest. That's not the example he set for us. Now, having said all of this, I said a few weeks ago I'm going to talk about the similarities between the left and the right in politics. Here it is. Could be my last Sunday here, so let's enjoy. Let's, <laughs> let's see how this goes. Okay, there's this missionary named Leslie Newbegin in the 1900s, the 1930s. He leaves UK. He leaves England. He goes down to be missionary in India, and he and his wife are missionaries there for almost 40 years. He comes back in the 1970s, and what he recognizes almost immediately is that it is no longer the nation that he left. And that actually, churches, especially back in the 1970s, they're doing everything the exact same way. But he said, that's not going to work because what they actually need, people have so, are so not following God that they actually need to be more like missionaries to reach them. He's a brilliant man who said many things that came to be true over 10 or 20 or 30 years later after him. One of his predictions was, as there's a rise in secularism, as there's a rise in like not including God in things, as there's a rise in that, politics will take on more and more religious qualities. Our politics will have relig a religious attitude towards them because he said, it's, we think it's secularism like no God, but he said if you study paganism, the spirits of paganism come underneath. So, John Mark Comer, there's been a few sermon series where I've been based on his book, like when we did mental health or when we did earthy spirituality about our work. He, I listened to a sermon by him recently where he talked about the idolatry of ideology. No. I wish I got it written down, actually. And I should have not said it. I will not use this at the second service, by the way, because, oh, ideological idolatry. So our political issues and being passionate about our political issues coming to a place where it's more important than the things of God, where it's more important than what God says, where we are so focused on this that we don't recognize we're missing this. We're not even lining up with this. So two disclaimers that I'm going to go in. One is we are, we are about as far away as we can from major elections. I am not trying to get anyone to vote any particular way. I'm not trying to convince anyone of what kind of party they should be at. Nothing like that. I'm not even trying to make a statement on politics so much because I'm a poli-sci major. Like, I've got plenty of ideas about why our system is broken. But this, what I, the point I'm trying to make is, is our politics, our political issues becoming idols where we don't match this. 
You do not have to agree with anything I say. But my point in saying it is to say, we don't want to be people who aren't even aware that we are, there's an idolatry in our lives. Or that there's something that's higher, more important to us in how we live out, how we talk, how we treat people than, what, than God and what he says. So, here we go. Mark Sayers says, we want the kingdom without the king. We want what's good, but we don't want anyone to be in charge. So God, may your kingdom come, but don't tell me what to do. Okay? Now, let's get that first image, Jacob. So here we go, January 6th. You're going to see all kinds. We had a boatload of options to pick from. I'm just picking one here. Remember, politics will take on more of a religious element. So what you saw on January 6th with the insurrection is you saw all kinds of religious symbols and uh, the, the Trump support, right? Trump is president, Christ is king. Mixing these two things together, having a cross and having flags. Mixing it all together when you go towards anarchy. Now, I'm not taking cheap shots at Trump or Republicans. I, I am aware that not everyone there was supporting what happened there. And certainly, lots of people who consider themselves Trump supporters or Republicans do not, not condone like the insurrection or anything like that. My point is, we've gotten to a place where we're combining, we're combining religious things and Trump in a way that you can't, you, it's his trouble to start to tell the difference and I think this is a natural consequence. January 6th is a natural consequence of that, outcome of that. Here's another picture. So, the clerical collar. The clerical collar is usually white. And now we've got people wearing it as a rainbow. Now, I was, I'm hesitant on this one because people who are in the LGBTQ community do not feel like churches are safe for them, most, most people. They do not feel like this is a place where they can process what's going on for them, where they're actually welcome. We can say, well, we love all people, but we don't actually do things that reinforce that. That being said, I think probably the motivation, part of the motivation, maybe a good motivation, is to say this is a safe place for people in the LGBT community. You're, it's safe for you to come here. However, the rainbow has got a political push to it and energy to it where that trumps whatever God's saying. So now you're taking something for, in the Catholic Church, this was also a sign of, I'm committing to be celibate. I'm making a, a sexual statement here that I'm going to leave that aside. And we're doing something very different with that. Again, mixing religious with the political. Now, Mark Sayers, I've got to get through a couple more slides and then I can just bring us to an end. Can you get to both the contemporary left and right seek to expand personal freedom as the solution to the human condition? This is what I want us to think about a little bit. Mark Sayers is a pastor in Australia. He's written many books. He's a cultural analyst and a, and a futurist. Both the contemporary left politically and right politically seek to expand personal freedom as the solution to the human condition. 
It's all about getting to do what we want to do. Getting to do what we want to do. So, here we go. The right to bear arms. That's my, oh, I could feel, I felt temperature change. Right to bear arms. I'm not against the right to bear arms. But here's the deal. There is a passion that I pick up on for the right to bear arms that is much higher than the passion that we're supposed to bear our cross daily. Bear our cross daily. Give up our rights. And follow Jesus. The passion level that Jesus would have for the right to bear arms compared to bearing our cross is a lot different than many of us have. Right to choose. A woman's right to choose what to do with her body. Well, we've went through, so that was an example that's more right politically, the bare arms. We've went through just a couple weeks ago, and it's throughout the Bible. Life starts in the womb. That's what the Bible says. We do have a right to choose. The Bible says, I have set before you life and death. You choose this day. Choose life. Now, I'm taking that out of context a bit. But it is true to the whole of Scripture. Choose life. The right side wants deregulation economically. Deregulation economically. Now, just is capitalism in the Bible? I am not a socialist. I am not a communist. I think it was, I think Winston Churchill said something like, Democratic capitalism is the worst form of government, except for all the other alternatives. The, the deal is, though, capitalism is not purely going to produce good. It takes goodness in societies to make capitalism work and to make democracy work. Deregulate everything because there's an idolatry of money. I'm not saying this one very well. Throw that one out. Don't get mad at me. But my point is, some of us, it's so ingrained in us that even that I brought up capitalism with a question mark, <laughs> but I don't think we're getting that from here. How about, how about sexual boundaries? So again, remember Mark Sayers' thing is like both the left and right are saying like deregulate deregulate the economy. I'm actually, I, I'm good with that. I'm good with deregulation. But it can become an idol where it doesn't matter what it means for other people. It doesn't matter what the income gap is. Deregulate. Deregulate my body. Dereg I get to choose whatever I want sexually. Don't put boundaries around me sexually. Deregulate. And this says we are created as sexual beings, and that's good. And sex is good, but it's meant to be within boundaries. It only flourishes within boundaries. I think I've made a point. I'm not sure I've made it well. But there is so much energy around the issues I'm bringing up right now. 
and I'm not even getting to all of them. And my reason for bringing it up is we're talking about a group of people who said, we're going to do whatever's right in our own eyes. And they unraveled, and they spiraled, and they went down. And we are a people who says, we want to do whatever's right in our own eyes. And we've gotten to a point where it's not about what is good or what is right. It's about which side has more votes. And that's who's going to win. And that's not good for us. So, it is easy to be negative right now. It's easy to say, well, this is what's wrong with this and this is what's wrong with that. What's the answer? Well, I hate to give a Sunday school answer, but I think the answer is Jesus. Give, give, um, if we can go just through those last few slides and then I'll, I'll close. We've forgotten the wisdom that to find happiness and fulfillment, we sometimes have to reduce our freedom to gain meaning and relationships. Okay, here's the slides. If we can go, go on, here are the ones. God's whole business is renewal. When we engage in it, we walk in his ways. And these next three or four slides are what I really want to get to. Jesus is a walking renewal. There is one man, his name is Micah, and he wants to do whatever's right for him. I'm going to take my mom's silver, I'll give it back if I get blessed, I'm going to make an idol, now everybody's going to come worship me, this is going to be good for me. And it's contagious. And it was contagious among all the people of Israel. And you start to see it's one person at a time and one family group at a time, and then it becomes a whole community, and then it becomes whole tribes, a whole region, a whole nation is living like that. But the opposite is true as well. There is Jesus who is a walking renewal. So if you go to the next slide, he models the perfect life system. And at the center of that is an abiding relationship with the Father. I want what you want. I want to do whatever you say is best. And then if you go on to the next slide, Jesus' life is an act of total worship and service to God. And I believe this is the final slide. The church, filled with God's spirit, acts as his renewing agent in the life system of the world. It can start with us, one person at a time, one family at a time, that can lead to a church, that can lead to a community, that can lead to a region being more focused on Jesus is Lord. I pledge my allegiance to Jesus above all else. God, we're going to actually have you be our God. What you say is what's most important. What you say is what we want to do. And all these other things, they may be important, and we could still have our opinions, and we will still have our opinions, and we can express those, but we are going to make sure that it's not even close. God is uh, above it all. Jesus is king above it all. Nothing else to compete with that. Nothing else to compete with that. That, I think, is the key. That's what wasn't happening by the end of Judges. That's what's not happening so much in a world where so many people profess to be Christians. But it's not based on this so much. We want to be a people who says, God, you are God. You are God. I will follow you. Have the worship team come up as we pray and transition to close. We praise you, God. As the one who created everything in the heavens and the earth, everything that's visible and invisible. You are the source of life. You're the sustainer of life. You're the one who made a way for eternal life. 
We want to trust you and choose you. So if there are ways that we have idolatry in our lives, where we have chosen, created things over you, our creator, would you forgive us? Would you give us the ability to come back to you? And we thank you that it's not in our own willpower. We do choose to come back to you, but we also recognize that it's your grace that you will provide help for us to do that. So now, just as in Romans 1, it talks about the exchanging the glory of God for created things, we want to make the exchange of our idolatry. We want to release that, take that away, give that back up to you. And we want to receive your grace again, receive your goodness, receive your lordship into our lives. Do you somehow facilitate those exchanges, even as we are closing and worshiping you? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.